Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. What you're going to notice in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah you're going to walk away starting to think maybe Isaiah is one of those doom and gloom preachers. Man, he's got a lot to say that is fire and brimstone, so to speak. Comes across pretty um, difficult and hard, like he's infuriated, he's angry. Something's bothering him, and the presence of sin in God's people just has him enraged. And there's no doubt that the presence of sin infuriates Isaiah. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he's going to come at us with the, uh, with the problem of sin in a way that verifies that sin infuriates Isaiah and most certainly infuriates God. But it's the possibility of the hope of God that inspires Isaiah. And in chapter 2, if you want to turn your Bibles back to chapter 2, we're going to finish the, in chapter 4 the passage that Colton read for us when we finish this morning, but we're going to start in chapter 2. And if you come back to chapter 2, you're going to see the first glimpse we get of Isaiah revealing some of the hope of God. And so the section of Isaiah chapter 2 to chapter 4 starts with and ends with a beautiful message of hope, but in the middle, there is still some reality that you and I are going to have to come to terms with so that we can have this hope become real for us. You see, we've said week after week that Isaiah has been given a vision of what the world will be like once God makes all things right again. Isaiah is sort of, he's a scholar of the the scriptures. He spent time, no doubt, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 seeing the way the world was before sin entered the world. And God has given Isaiah a vision of what the world will become once all things are made right. And Isaiah is just so excited about this. He's dreaming about that world in which to come. And so when he looks around and he sees God's people disinterested, cold, and distant from their maker, Isaiah begins to be stirred. He gets angry, not at them, but for them. Because he doesn't want anyone to miss the hope of what God has promised of what is to come. Isaiah chapter 2 is a very, very simple chapter. And so we're going to try to keep it that way. But it's also very powerful. Its message is twofold. It first has a message of hope. But it also has a message of humility. And so this morning we're going to see just simply the power of hope and the power of humility. Let's start with the power of hope. Go back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what Isaiah says here to begin this section of Scripture. He says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, this is the vision of what he's seeing concerning God's people. He says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. 
For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Chapter 2 is going to start out by giving us this beautiful glimpse of hope of what the world is going to be like. The realities that we're going to exist in once God sets all things right and rids us of sin. You notice that he says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. There's going to be a time that Isaiah is looking forward to when these realities come to pass. And I'm going to share this hope with you in a simple form. First of all, here's the first reality that you and I can hope for. It's found in the beginning of verse 2, and it is the exclusivity of God. The exclusivity of God. Now, this might sound strange, but let me try to explain. You notice he talks about the mountain of the Lord being raised up above all other mountains. In this day in which Isaiah was writing, the mountains were an important place in people's culture. Mountains were the place where heaven was able to touch earth. And so every nation and every culture would build temples and set up places or houses of worship on their mountains that were in their land. And so there were all kinds of mountains with all kinds of gods and all kinds of temples and all kinds of worship. And flowing from those mountains were all kinds of laws or rules on how people should live. And Isaiah is dreaming about a day. He's seeing a day, a vision in which God has given him and where God's mountain, the mountain of Zion, will rise above all other mountains. It will be above all other mountains. It will be a day a day that is coming when God's mountain will be exalted as the highest mountain above all. And his glory will be known to all people. You see, his exclusivity, God being the exclusive God, the exclusive mountain, his exclusive glory, is based upon the fact that he has that kind of glory. It's not just upon, based upon his power. Let me explain what I mean by that. God didn't get the exclusive position because he won some war against all other gods and he just happened to be the victor. That's not how it works. God wasn't the most crafty or the most powerful, although he might be. God is exclusive as the only God because of his great glory. He is the only God. Now, this idea is not all the way popular in our pluralistic society. The idea of being exclusive is sort of seen as being intolerant, and intolerance is seen as evil. So the highest good in our culture that we live in today is this idea of tolerance, which is believed to produce the goal that we're all striving for, which is inclusion or unity or oneness. And so there's a certain desire that rests inside of our culture today for there to be an idea of inclusion, oneness, and unity. Now that goal is a great goal. That desire is a good thing. But the pathway to get that is unfortunately not going to work. You see, the very basis of just saying, let's have inclusion, will not lead to all of us being one. It doesn't work that way. It will eventually break down, because if all of us in this room agree that our highest aim is just to be one, but we don't have a basis for our oneness, there will eventually be a time when somebody says something, does something, or lives in a certain way that the group looks at and says, 
I'm not sure we should do that. You see, morality always enters the picture in people's mind. It's just a line that's always moving. So if we as a group say, listen, let's put religion aside and let's just be one, there will eventually be a time when some, enough of us say, I'm worried about what that person's doing. Can they really be part of our group? And so our goal of inclusion will ultimately end up excluding people. Do you see that? It's happening today. Inclusion is a good goal, but um, tolerance is not the way to get there. In fact, it eventually breaks down. There's a better way. The exclusivity of God produces something that I want you to see at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. Read this with me. He says, once he is, once God is the exclusive God, exalted above all other mountains, look what happens at the end of verse 2, and all nations shall flow to him. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion will go forth the law. You see, the second hope is not just that God will be exclusive as the only God, but that there will be an inclusivity of all people based upon who God is. People will flow to him naturally. You see, when God is exalted as the single God and people get a glimpse of who he really is, there will be a natural flow to him. You notice he's on a mountain, but he says the river will flow to him. How many of you have ever seen a river flow up a mountain? Anybody? I've never seen a river flow up a mountain. But here he uses this word specifically. He says, when God is at the highest point, exalted above all, people will flow to him. You see, the exclusivity of God produces the inclusivity of all people. Because what they find in him is that he's lovely, that he's beautiful, that he's good, that he's right. And when you see him for who he is, look what he produces as the third basis of our hope. Not just that the exclusivity of God produces the inclusivity of all people, but the third point in verse 4 is this, that there will be, when God is exalted on high and all nations flow to him, there will be universal peace. Do you notice he says that people then, when they all flow to God and they learn from him, they will beat their swords into plowshares, meaning their weapons of warfare will now become tools for gardening. They will beat these uh, swords into plowshares. He says there in verse 4, their spears will turn into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up a sword against another nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. When God is exalted as our highest teacher and our primary judge, he produces peace. And that is based upon the fact that he occupies now the position of ruler and teacher. Now, who in the world has ever been able to produce this kind of universal peace? I think all of us would agree that we long for that. In fact, the voice of the people even today is claiming for this. We want this universal cohesion and peace to be amongst all people from all nations, all backgrounds, for there to be a sort of peace. But the only way for there to be true reconciliation amongst people, regardless of their differences, is a singular devotion to the supremacy of God. There will not be unification of people from class differences, gender differences, race differences, 
neighborhood differences. There won't be a unification of those people save there is a singular devotion to the supremacy of God in your life. And there's a danger in this. You see, only in the light of God's glory that he is supreme will we put away our sinful ignorance that makes us strip other humans of their dignity. When you stand in light of God's glory and realize he is the creator, you then put away your ignorance that takes other people's dignity away and oppresses people. And in the same moment, when we stand in the glory of God, we put away our sinful anger that sometimes causes us to pursue justice but become unjust ourselves. There's great danger in that. Submission to the ultimate rule of God because of his ultimate beauty produces an inclusive people of peace. That's a hope worth living for, isn't it? And he has promised it will come. Now look in verse 5. Don't miss this before we get to the humility. Verse 5 says this. Look who he's pleading with. O house of Jacob. He's pleading with God's people. O house of Jacob, I'm going to beg of you to do something. Come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. In light of this hope, here's what the world will eventually be. This is not some dream. This is not just some wishful thinking. When Isaiah declares that there will be a time when God is exalted and people are included and there's universal peace, he's saying that will be reality someday. And so, oh, God's people, I'm begging you to live in that reality now. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, he wants us to live walking in this light. He is calling God's people to be the vision of God's future for the world to see what's to come. That means that in this room right now, the call of God upon us is that we would be individual people who put God as supreme, the highest glory in our lives that we put away that which divides us and we come together because of the supremacy of God and we have a kind of peacefulness amongst us that is different than anything else this world has ever seen. That means not that we don't have differences. That doesn't mean that we don't have problems from time to time. That means that in this house we work it out. That under the blood of Jesus Christ we get together and we say God is supreme, not my will. God is supreme, not my way. And I want us to be one, that we as a people of God declare to the world, this is what God's future will look like. As Jesus told us, we should be a city that's set on a hill. And when that light is so shining, people will see that and begin to give glory to God. You see, the place I oftentimes like to find myself if I'm confessing to you is to sit in the comfort of my religion and look out upon the world and say, if those people would just get their lives together our world would be fine. Now that may be true, but here's what God's saying. If my people will get their lives together in my house, the rest of the world will see what the world is supposed to look like. That's what he's saying. Okay? So we must raise God as supreme. And as you and I do this naturally, we will become a diverse group of people who share an unbreakable peace with each other. Sounds easy, right? No problem. You all been around for a while. Peace amongst people is pretty easy, isn't it? No, not at all. Because there's one thing that gets in the way of peacefulness. Now, I know people like to explain that there's a lot of circumstances and situations and different unique problems that arise that cause people to divide. But you know what causes people to divide? 
when you really boil it down, there's one root cause that makes people divide, and that is human pride. Pride is the cause of all division amongst people. And so what God is calling for us as his people to live in the power of this hope of what the world is going to be, you and I have got to deal with, as God's people, our pride. We've got to face this. And so the rest of chapter 2, he's going to tell us about this, starting in verse 6. Listen to this. He says, you have forsaken your peoples, talking to God, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. We've got to start, first of all, with the power of humility and deal with the pride in God's people. There's four things he tells us here in this passage in verses 6 through 9 that we got to wrestle with with regards to our pride. The word over and over you see popping up in this passage is the word full. You notice he says God's people are full of this. They're full of this. They're full of this. They're full of all kinds of things. He says, first of all, they're full of worldly wisdom. There's those from the eastern, he says in verse 6. They're filled with eastern ways, soothsayers like the Philistines. Oh, for the number of times that God's people are turning to worldly wisdom to solve their life problems and not turning to the counsel of God. We're looking for life coaches and inspirational speakers. We kind of want a TED Talk Bible verse and that our life will just be fine. And that's not how it works. The wisdom of God runs counterintuitive to the wisdom of man. And there are times when you need answers in this life that you are not going to like from God. And our wisdom will wrestle with that. And sometimes we think we're smarter than God and we go our own way. He says, my people are full of worldly wisdom. Secondly, he says, my people are full of worldly wealth. They are rich in money like gold and silver. They've got chariots. They can go where they want. They can buy what they want. They're full of money and possessions, yet they are poor in good works. Remember, these people have left helpless orphans and widows. Number three, he says, my people are full of worldly power, worldly power. They have gained influence, he says, by means of domination, not means of servanthood. Remember, Jesus flipped this idea on its head when he was talking to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, he said, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord over people. They gain influence through domination and power, but I don't want that to be true of my people. I want you to gain influence. I want you to have power. I want you to make a difference through lowering yourself and being a servant. Asking, what are those people around me? What do they need and how can I serve? And finally, he finishes with this. So we're full of worldly wisdom, worldly wealth, worldly power. And he warns us of being full of worldly religion. He says they've got idols in verse 8. The land is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. That which their own fingers have made is what they worship. There's a worldly religion. Now, here's what worldly religion is. One simple telltale sign of worldly religion. And it shows up in all kinds of forms. It can look like church. It can not look like church. But worldly religion has this one thing. You worship what you do. It might be your career. It might be the family you're raising. It might be the wealth you're amassing. 
It might be some other religion that looks like a church. It might be a philosophy that you live by. Or it might actually be the activities that you participate in, in the church. But it becomes worldly religion when you worship what you do, not God himself. If we are worshiping, if what we are worshiping, pardon me, is our perfect worship, and not God himself. It's no different than any other world religion. Okay? God alone is to be worshipped by how we worship. So these people are full of worldly wisdom and wealth and power and religion, but they're empty of the Spirit. They don't have any of the character that God wants them to have, like Paul would tell us, to have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and to be filled with something that you don't possess. To be filled with something that you don't produce means that you have to empty yourself of you and let God fill you. I like the way C.S. Lewis described humility when talking about pride and humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, meaning I'm worthless, I'm dumb, I can't do anything right. That's thinking less of yourself. He said, humility is thinking of yourself less. To stop thinking about yourself. To empty yourself. To let yourself be filled with what God has for us. So God is concerned with the pride in his own people. The second thing he's concerned with, starting in verse 10, is the pride that's in the world. He says, enter into the rock and hide, in verse 10, in the dust, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of a man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Now listen to verse 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon the oaks of Bashan, upon the high mountains and upon the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower and upon every fortified wall, upon the ships of Tarshish and upon the beautiful slopes. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. You see, the key phrase that pops up over and over this passage is this, that God is against all and everything that is lifted up, that is exalted above him. Over and over, he keeps saying, God alone will be exalted. God alone will be lifted up. You see, over and over, the world is constantly lifting things up to be exalted against the excellency and supremacy of God himself. We lift things up all, of the, all the time. If you look around in our culture and our world, they're lifting things up to be served as a God because what they're saying is if you serve this thing in our culture, it will give you what you want, joy, peace, happiness, success, whatever you think that you want. And those are things that are being lifted up over and over in cultures across the world. People lift things up against the supremacy of God to deliver to you only what God can. And so he tells us here that here's often what we lift things up. If you look verses 12 through 15, he says we lift things up that we believe provide for us. Verses 13 says this, the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan, these, these resources that provide for us, that allow us to do the things that we want to do, we lift up those things that we believe that provide for us. We lift up things that we believe that protect us. He says the mountain and the hills, 
all these different things, the fortified wall, the high tower. We lift up the things that we believe that are protecting us, keeping us safe. He says we lift up the things that promote us. Verse 16, upon all the ships of Tarshish and all the beautiful slopes, the things that they have built. See, here's what mankind does. We lift up, honor, exemplify the things that we believe provide for us. Maybe our jobs or our careers. We lift up things that protect us that we believe. And we lift up things that are going to promote us and what we've done. Now here's my question for you as we sort of wind this down. Why do you think God cares about this problem? Why does God care? I'm no threat to his glory, right? You're no threat to his glory. Whether I buy into his glory or not, his glory will not be shaken. It's above the heavens, Psalms tells us. You and I collectively are no threat to his glory. So why does God care if we exalt things other than him? Is it because he's an egomaniac? They just can't stand to be beat and it just frustrates him and angers him. So he's just this competitive spirit that's insecure and says, I won't let these people think that I'm not glorious. And he's angry at us. Is that why? Is he an egomaniac? Not at all. You see, God's full glory, God's great supremacy, being known to all people, is the source of their highest joy. And God knows that. When you finally see God as supreme in your life, you will finally have your fullest sense of joy. That's why God cares. He wants his full glory to be known so that you can have your fullest joy. You were made by him, but you were also made for him. He is your eternal love. Did you know that? No matter what Hollywood or Disney tells you, even that husband or wife that's sitting next to you or the one you're dreaming about that you don't have yet, God is your eternal love, your ultimate joy, your ultimate source of satisfaction. This is why you and I become so restless and dissatisfied with things in this life, even the best of things. Our jobs, our family, our spouse, our friends, vacations. Things. It's why we run restless sometimes and we get frustrated or dissatisfied because we're asking those things to satisfy and fulfill only that which God can. And it is unfair for you to ask your job, your family, your children, your spouse to be God for you. They can't do it. And you'll never love them right if you love them ultimate and you don't love God ultimate. You'll be asking them to be perfect, to be God, to redeem you, to make you meaningful, and they'll never do it. And you'll always be frustrated. But when you love God first, you'll love everything else right. Only God alone can give you full joy. So the world lifts things up as supreme and promises you full joy if you'll submit and we end up seeing God as competition for, in our minds, what we think we really want. And the question is this, that we always have to wrestle with in our sin. Here's what people, the, 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 what we run into. The question is this, do I want to pursue what I want, or do I want to pursue God? And there is an inherent flaw in that question. I'm curious if you found it. The question we ask all the time is, am I going to pursue what I want, or am I going to pursue God? And here's the answer that someday will be revealed to you, and I hope is revealed right now in this moment. 
what you really want is God. You've made it a competition because of your sin. And you've been twisted into deception to think that what you want and what God wants are against each other. And so you wrestle with pride. That's what pride is, the exalting of self. You wrestle with that, and you wonder about it, and you fight over it, and you struggle. You know what I'm talking about, right? Don't leave me hanging up here. You know that fight spiritually. Do I do what I want, or do I follow God? And God is saying, I am what you want. You won't be satisfied till you get me. That's why God cares about his glory being revealed. And he is going to make sure that his glory is declared to the ends of the earth. Woven through this entire passage is this phrase, the day of the Lord, the day, the day that will come. Verse 12 says it this way, the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, the haughtiness of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. That's going to happen. When his full glory is known, and he calls that day a day of terror. He says on that day, it will be terror. And it should cause us to shudder. It should cause us to shake a little bit, to wonder about that. But you know, the worst thing to happen to us is not the day of the terror of the Lord. The worst thing to happen to us is not to lose a retirement savings or a job or our health or our loved one. That's not the worst thing that can happen to us. The worst thing that can happen to you is to lose a sense that God is your supreme joy. From that, we lose everything else. And so God says on that day, when we finally see his fullness of glory, if you look down in verse 20, he says, in that day, when his full glory is known, man will cast away his idols. Do you see that? When the supremacy of God is finally seen, every person, believer or unbeliever, will take their idols and they'll throw them away. Look where they throw them. He says, which are made for himself to worship. He says, they throw them to the moles and the bats. They just throw them to what's worthless. And when we toss them away, you've got one of two things you can do. You can either do what the end of chapter 2 says. He says, they will go into clefts of the rock and into the crags of the rugged rocks. From the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth, he's saying, they will Run and hide on that day. But there's another option. What Colton read for us in chapter 4. Look at this passage. He says, in that day, the terror of the Lord. He says, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. You see, there's something beautiful that's going to capture your attention, something that's going to capture your awe. He says it's the branch of the Lord, which is a reference to the Messiah, the one that the Lord's going to bring who saves us. You see, you and I can see this branch now. Isaiah was on the other side of the prophecy saying a branch is going to come. We know what that branch is. It's Jesus Christ. He says those who come to that branch will be washed clean. And they will enjoy, he says in verses 4, 5, and 6, the full presence of God, smoke and fire, meaning God's presence among them. There'll be a canopy of God's glory, and they're going to see it. And on that day, it'll be beautiful and glorious to those who are attached to the branch. You see, you can either see the branch now as beautiful and glorious, throw away your idols, and turn to God as supreme. 
or on that day when reality strikes and you realize everything you've lived for meant nothing, you're going to throw your idols away and you're going to hide. What idol do you need to cast away today? What thing, even if it's a good thing, do you need to stop asking to be your God, your source of ultimate joy? Who in here needs to look to Jesus as that source and have the humility it takes to confess their sin, to repent of that idolatry, turn to him and give your life to him so that he can be that joy and you can have his peace? Let's stand and sing. If you need help, you can come.